Now, let me just uh, orientate us back into Romans. Today we're in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. So if you could turn up there. And uh, let me just give you the gospel in two sentences. <laughs> in the first service, somebody pointed out, that, fair enough, they were two sentences, but they had about 50 subordinate clauses in them. That's not true. Only five. Two sentences. Number one, all of humanity, without exception, including morally upright, middle-class, educated people, including religious people, including all of us, are unrighteous and therefore condemned to everlasting judgment in hell, and there is nothing we can do about it. That's sentence one. And that's what Paul has been impressing on us. All of humanity without exception, are unrighteous and there's nothing we can do to climb the ladder to be righteous in God's sight. And that's sobering and wonderful at the same time. The second sentence, what is the gospel? The gospel is justification, and that word means the declaration that you are righteous. It is a declaration that comes from God who says to us, I declare you righteous through grace alone. Grace simply means unmerited, free gift. Undeserved and free, God says. Received by faith alone, all I ask of you, God says, is that you receive the gift with the empty hands of faith. Faith alone and Christ alone. I have given you my son to die in your place, bearing your sin and bearing the judgment for your sin. So humanity is in a desperate situation. And God says, look, I am declaring you righteous by grace alone, through faith alone. All you need to do is Hold out your hands and receive what I give you in Christ alone. Now that's the gospel. Let me ask you five weeks into Romans, have you understood the gospel? Are you justified? Have you been declared righteous by God? Are you safe? Are you sure? Are you really sure? Are you really sure? If you're not sure, well, let me encourage you to find out what it is that you're not sure about. Come to Christianity Explored. There'll be 10 of us or so, people who are not sure, who want to be sure. Or speak to me. I'd be glad to do that with you. Somebody spoke to me after the first service who wasn't sure. And they said to me, is it all right not to be sure? And I said, well, it's all right to say you're not sure because then you might become sure. It's not all right not to know the gospel though. Now, that's chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, the gospel. And then Paul spends four chapters, 5, 6, 7, 8, that's a long time, trying to convince us as Christians. So I'm going to pretend this morning that you lot on this side of the room are all Christians, and you aren't, just for an illustration, okay? Let's try and get, my head, get your heads around this. Paul wants to convince you as Christians, 
to have absolute confidence and assurance that you will spend, for example, all of eternity in glory. That when you come to the end of this life, you will not flinch. That you are safe as you sit here this morning. That nothing can separate you from God's love in Christ. That you do not need to doubt. And one day you will be free of sin. Why does Paul need to spend four chapters convincing you of that? Imagine these guys over here are not Christians. Just have a look at them. This is kind of African culture, okay? Just have a look at they. What do they look like? They look like you. If you were to take, like, we're all Christians, and you guys are off the hook now. If you were to bring in 200 people off the streets this morning who would be absolutely clear they're not Christians, they're not going to look any different. They're not going to be more or less exempt from suffering than you and I are. They're going to struggle, you're going to struggle. So are we really different? Are we really different? And we're all going to die. It's a cheery thought. Now Paul's concern is to encourage us all that we can have absolute assurance in the gospel. Real, real certainty. Now, The great thing about preaching a sermon twice is that I can build on the comments that people give me between the services, which are very often about the weather, but occasionally more spiritual. I made a comment in the first service that I really need as minister Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, because I doubt. I doubt it's true. I mean, not all the time, but occasionally. I'm afraid of dying and death, perhaps because I see a lot of it. And sometimes I think, is Jesus really going to come back? And somebody said to me after the service, do you really doubt? And I said, yes. And they went, do you really doubt? And I said, yes. And I said to them, do you really doubt? And they said, every day. Now, Paul wants to take us all by the scruff of the neck in these chapters and really convince us, convince us that the gospel is true. Now let's read verses 12 to 21. Paul gives us certainty. Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam is implied, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
But the free gift, that's the gift of righteousness in Christ, is not like the trespass or sin. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's a simple few verses. I want to convince you it is. The complexity in these verses, and there is a complexity, is because Paul shifts back all the time to address the question of the Jewish Christians saying, but what about us? What about our heritage? Was it different for us? That's where the complexity comes. But the essential point in here is really, really simple. So let's pray before we study it together. Father God, we pray for your help, that you would be your teacher, and that we will really learn, and that having done so, uh, we will be more reassured than we are now as to who we are in Christ. We pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, Paul has a simple contrast in this text, in this passage. He contrasts two individuals, on the one hand, Adam, and on the other hand, Jesus, who is often called the second Adam. Two individuals, Adam and Jesus, and two acts or actions. On the one hand, Adam's act of disobedience, and on the other hand, Jesus' act of obedience. Two individuals, Adam, Jesus. Two acts, Adam's act of disobedience, Jesus' act of obedience. And then two consequences. The consequence of Adam's act of disobedience and the consequence of Jesus' act of obedience. And therefore, the backdrop behind it all, two definitions of humanity. Humanity in Adam and humanity in Jesus. A clear contrast. Now, the gospel, as we've come to see in Romans, is clear. The gospel is justification by grace through faith in Christ. There is no other gospel. It's not vague. We can do nothing to save ourselves. God has done it all in Christ. All you need to do is come empty-handed to the cross to receive salvation. It's simple. The simple biblical gospel. That's great. 
And here's another simple statement from Paul. There are two humanities on the earth. There are those who are in Adam, humanity in Adam, and there are those who are in Christ, humanity in Christ. And the way that Paul addresses Christians all through the New Testament, he addresses them as those who are in Christ. And he wants us to understand, as Christians, that we are a new humanity in Christ. Whereas before we were a humanity in Adam. And when you walk along the street after the service today, and I do encourage you to make use of all these coffee shops and tell them where you're from and invite them along. Ask them for a free coffee. I get free coffees. I can tell you the shops. Two of them. When you walk up and down Morningside Road, just look at people. Is he in Adam? Or is he in Christ? Is he or she a new humanity in Christ? Or is he or she a human? That's how the street is divided. But you're not going to know that unless you know the gospel. That's the point. You are never, as a Christian, going to feel as much as a Christian as you know you are if you know the gospel. Does that make sense? So sometimes, when I'm like right at this moment, I, I really do believe the gospel. Often happens when you're preaching it. When you sing. Or when you're on a good spell in your Christian life. And feeling coincides with knowing. But oftentimes in the Christian life, you don't feel like the Holy Spirit lives within you. But you know that he does. That's why knowledge is so important. But not just knowledge. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's a fly. Oh, dear. Go away. Today's been a day of distractions. At least you got the video to work in this service. Where's the fly gone? It's on my hair. <laughs> you know that distractions... I think what you get Sundays where there's lots of friction going on, stuff. I think God's got something to say often when that happens. Now, Paul wants us to understand this is who you were before you became a Christian, and this is who you now are now that you have. A fundamental identity change. Has happened. Let me illustrate that with some silly examples. Uh, we're about to move house in three weeks, and uh, when we move house in a few weeks, if uh, our previous experiences of moving house are anything to go by, there will be occasions, and maybe you have shared this, when you find yourself driving home and you go to the wrong house. <laughs> None of you have had that experience, obviously. Um, I do quite regularly. It happened to our dog. Um, she got lost in the meadows. And bless her, the little thing, she went to the wrong house. <laughs> now, you, you go somewhere, you, you go... Here's another way of illustrating that. When we, was, we were growing up as Christians, Mr. Philip was the minister, um, and uh, he loved Romans, and he always used this illustration. He said that for a while after we were married, Mrs. Philip, his wife, would go to the butcher shop in the village up on the northeast coast where they lived, 
And uh, for those of you here who are young, you used to get butcher shops on main streets, not any longer. And the butcher would address her as Mrs. Philip. And, and she often would come home and say, oh, I did, who, who's that? You know, it's kind of take two. Oh, that's me. That's me. So when you walk down Morningside Road, you might, after a cracking sermon or not, or after two great gospel hymns at the end of this sermon, feel like a Christian. But you might not, but you will know you are. Because you are married to Christ. You have a new Christian name, literally, theologically. So who were you in Adam, verses 12 to 14? Let me read it again, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, the one man is Adam. I wonder if you have seen a a TV program. It's called, Who Do You Think You Are? It's the program when people look into their past, their family history, And there is, I think, in all of us, to a greater or lesser extent, an interest in finding our roots, perhaps instinctively, because we believe that we are bound up with other human beings. We are not individuals. So who do you think you are? Paul begins his introduction to our family history by describing Adam. Now, Paul assumes that Adam is an historical figure, as much as he assumes that Christ is an historical figure. We don't have time to look at that. I'd be happy to chat to you about that afterwards if you would like to. But he makes that assumption that Adam was a man, flesh and blood, as Jesus was a man, flesh and blood. But notice what Paul says about Adam. He says, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And in other words, when God created the world, there was no sin in the world. There was no sickness, and there was no sin in humanity. And therefore, there was no death, because there was no sin. But sin entered the world through Adam, or humanity's, act of disobedience. God said, don't do this, and Adam, or Adam and Eve may be implied here, the first humans or humanity, disobeyed God. They broke God's command. And sin entered the world. And with it, death. Probably the most powerful evidence that something is far wrong in our world is death. It's fundamentally a disordered thing, a bleak thing. Something's far wrong. Now look with me really carefully at how verse 12 continues. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so, or if you've got an NIV, in this way, 
death spread to all humanity because all sin. In other words, Adam's act of disobedience brought all of humanity under sin and death. Paul makes the same point in verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass, that is, Adam's act of disobedience led to condemnation for all humanity, all men. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. In other words, through Adam's act of disobedience, his descendants, all of humanity, and that includes you and I, we have been made sinners and face the penalty of death. Now, that might be hard to take on board. You think, well, is that fair? It's very, we need to be careful when we turn to God and his word with, is that fair? Let me shift you to the realm of fact. We're not born innocent or neutral blank sheets of paper that might go one way or the other, even though when we are born, we look like that. So I got a a picture this week from someone in the church um, who I had been writing to. They were struggling at work, and work was difficult, but they said they came home and they saw their new child, and they sent me a picture of it. And to be fair, he did look really cute and sinless. I thought, I know, he's a little rascal. Now, I'm not allowed to mention my children ever again, but I am allowed to mention the children of the people who work with me in the church. And uh, both Toby and little Grace are coming up to two. And they are instinctively able to sin. And it's funny, it is funny, because they're quite cute as well. (laughs) But, But you know that yourself. There's that inbuilt, natural wire in us to be selfish, to hit, to cry, to get away. If any of you have grown up in families with siblings, I mean, you may be an exception to the rule and never sinned, but it's wired into it. You know these old supermarket trolleys? Most of you can't remember that. When I was growing up, the supermarket trolleys never went straight. You push them along the aisles and they would swerve off and hit the cereal packets and they all fall down. And we're like that. We, we kind of veer off. Willie, you remember them, don't you? I'm just telling the student next to you, oh, when I was your age, I remember them. <laughs> you youngsters don't know. Of course, the, the most powerful thing, the most powerful evidence of, of, of sin is that we all, we all die. Now, it's a strange thing, I, I think, to grasp that one act of disobedience can lead to that. But think of the who do you think you are, looking into your past. When I look into my past, I find my life is very similar to every single human being that has ever lived. It's just how we are as human beings. And we're not born with blank sheets of paper and go one way or the other. I mean, that's what people might might argue, that we are all born sinless and we go one way or the other. I mean, if that is true, 
And it might be that you could argue that culture conditions us to go one way and not the other, but surely there will be one person, one person in the whole of human history that's managed to keep that clean sheet. Let me put you, uh, give you a challenge. Try to live this week without sin. Just one week, and come back, and I'll give you the lecture next week, and you can stand up here and say, I haven't sinned. And then somebody from the church will say, well, there's pride, that's a sin. And after the first service, someone came up to me and said, look, I've sinned already. I haven't even left the church. It's true, isn't it? It's true. It's true. And all we do as humanity is we kind of make daisy chains and we, we buy things and we try and pretend that life isn't as harsh as it is. Or we go to the gym endlessly. And, you know, on these stickers on the bikes in the gym, uh, get fitter, live longer. You should put in brackets, not much. I mean, it's not true, is it? It's not true. It's not true. I mean, you might get a few years. Now, That's who we were in Adam. Now, I think what I've said, or what God's Word says, is persuasive. You've got to remember that, though. It's who we were. That's who people are without Christ. Even though they look the same. Now, verses 30 to 14, I'm just going to skip over them. Paul is speaking about uh, the time of uh, Adam's disobedience, the time between that and the giving of the law to Moses at Sinai. The law simply compounded sin, but what about between the two times? And Paul addresses that and says that people were still culpable uh, for sin. But that's a a specific argument in relation to uh, Jewish questions. In the Christianity Explored on Monday night, the Christianity Explored course, people keep asking, is it as simple as that? Is it as simple as that, the gospel? Is it really two ways to live? Is it really those who are in and those who are not in? Is it really a a corridor down the middle that no one is standing on because there is no no man's land? The Bible says yes. Yes. And how glad we are that the gospel is simple. So let me turn now to who you now are in Christ. A Christian is somebody who is in Christ, a new humanity, as different from someone in Adam. This is a quote from Calvin, I think. As the difference between Mount Everest and the highest peak in England, see. Or think of Arthur's seat in Edinburgh. As different as Mount Everest is, 29,500 feet, from the 800 feet of what we call a hill, as people who are in Christ are from those who are in Adam. 
the, the shift from that side of the fence to that side of the fence is the shift from everlasting judgment in hell to everlasting glory. That's not just a little step. The shift from that side to that side is from darkness to light, from peril to safety, from pointlessness to purpose, from meaninglessness to meaning, from despair to hope, and many other things. Why am I saying that? Why is Paul saying that? Because we don't believe it. Because when you look at our lives, it doesn't feel like that. Feel like that. Feel like that. I keep mentioning people who have serious depression. I've had it in the past and sometimes still do. So there you go, you know. That's why I mention it. I don't mention it for that reason. I mention it because many people suffer from these mental illnesses. And, and they, they are people who feel nothing. Feel nothing. And I think these people get closer to an understanding of what the gospel really is because they know Jesus and believe in him absolutely when they feel nothing. And it's a powerful way to live, even if you never suffer from any of that in your life. Because we are as up and down as anything in this world. So if you are in Christ, the difference between who you are now and who you once were is just, I can't find any way of describing the kind of, the, the contrast and, and now what Paul is doing in these verses, if you just remember when we read them, Paul contrasts Adam's act of disobedience with Christ's act of obedience. And while he's saying that there are clear parallels between the two, Paul is kind of concerned that lest we draw too close a comparison. So you know, every time he talks about Jesus in these verses, it's so much more or in abundance or far greater than. And the point is that he wants to say that Adam's act of disobedience is cancelled out by Christ's act of obedience. But the cancelling out is not, this is Adam's act of disobedience and God musters all his supernatural energy and he gets up to this point and they meet just at that point and just by a whisker, grace wins. It's like this. It's superabundant. Superabundant grace. And that, you know, when we talk about the gospel, we often say that the gospel gets me right with God. And God's saying, no, it does more than that. It adopts you as my child. It gives you the inheritance that my son has. Yes, it cancels out Adam's disobedience. But much, 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 much more than that. So look at verse 15. The free gift, that's righteousness, is not like the trespass, for if many die through one trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And there's a danger that, that we think that 
that, that it's, a, it's a neat exchange or like an equation. X minus 1 equals Y plus 2 or whatever. It doesn't really, but you know what I mean. It's not an equation. It's not neat. It's not just neat logic. Oh, how interesting the gospel is. It's, it's, it's death being taken on by Jesus and defeated. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And the contrast here is between Adam's one sin which brought condemnation, but how does God respond to that sin and the many, many, many sins that followed Adam's sin? God responds to all those sins with the offer of a gift. Not condemnation, which is what we deserve, but opposite, justification. Now, think of it like this. In a courtroom, that's a, a typical way that's used to explain the gospel. So there you are in the courtroom in the dock, guilty of sin, with a sentence, everlasting judgment on your head. And the judge comes in, and he bangs his little gavel, and he says, look, you've done wrong, and I'm going to let you off. Somebody else is going to pay the price. That's right. But the, 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 the description that Paul most often uses for being acquitted is the giving of a gift. It's not that as you stand in the dock, God points the finger at us and says, you deserve to be on that cross, not my son. He doesn't ever do that. He just gives it to us as a gift. And think of the cross. God never, ever, ever wrestles with a decision. You know when you do something right or righteous? Isn't that little bit in your heart self-justifying? Or saying, I'm doing it because they wouldn't do it? It's like going into the courtroom and the judge coming down off the bench and not just acquitting you, giving you a gift. It's just absurd. Verse 18 and 19 summarize, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, all humanity, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Is it as simple as that? Is it as simple as the fact that we are born into sin? We are humanity in Adam, and therefore we will die, and therefore we will be judged for all eternity in hell. Is it as simple as that? Yes, it is as simple as that. And is it as simple that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that we might be forgiven, that he was raised, that we might have life, and that if we believe in him with empty hands of faith, we will live forever in glory, yes. If you doubt that's true, you must come tomorrow night. Well, you must, mustn't you? What if it might be true? You must come and look at the evidence for the man who is at the heart of all of this, Jesus. Now, verse 20 just picks up the Jewish question again, uh, really simply to say that the law, the Old Testament law, uh, 
is not how people are saved. It's simply exposed uh, sin, made us sin more and more. And there's a lovely little, <laughs> using Toby again as my illustration, Sam was telling us this week that he, he's saying, you know, when you say to a toddler, two-year-old, don't do it. Toby, don't press that button. What does Toby do? Press the button. That's sin, compounding sin. Because the law says don't do it. We do. That's striking, isn't it? Now let me conclude. Uh, How can you be certain? Let me conclude first by asking the question is which side of the line are you on? So which side of the line are you on? Go on, look up, all of you. Look me in the eye. Which side of the line are you on? Which side are you on? Are we in Adam? Or are we in Christ? Are we under judgment? Or under grace? Are we in darkness? Or are we in light? Can you look your funeral in the eye and not flinch? Where are you going to spend eternity? Which one? All you need to do is hold out your hands and receive Jesus. This week in our staff meeting, we always give input to sermons. We don't have any feedback. It's not great getting feedback after you've preached it, really, is it? Because you can't think about it for another five years, then you can come back to it. So Sam this week, who is, by the way, a brilliant parent, and Toby is very, very sweet and cute, just normal. Sam said to me, look, it's it's a good sermon on what it's like to live in that realm or that realm. But why is Paul writing this in Romans? It's a great question, isn't it? He's writing it in Romans so that Christians can be certain that you are in Christ, that no condemnation now you dread, that Jesus and all in him is mine. You're alive in him, and you're clothed in his righteousness, which is divine Now, this far through in Romans, does that make you arrogant? Really? I don't see you as Christians walking down Morningside Road arrogantly this afternoon. I think you'll just be ever thankful. There is no room for boasting, but there is room for joy, and there is room for assurance. But can I really be sure I know he said it's not about how I feel, it's about the facts. How can you really be sure? Here's the answer. You ready? You know the answer. How can you be absolutely 100% sure? The answer is because the gospel is justification by grace alone. 
Nothing to do with you. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. How can you be sure? Because it's got nothing to do with who you are other than someone whom God loves. You couldn't be sure if it was 99% Jesus and 1% you. You couldn't be really sure. And most of us as Christians come into the Christian life really sure that the gospel is justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. By about day two in the Christian life, we've forgotten. And we think, no, no, I've got to, I've got to get right with God. That's not to say that we don't need to deal with sin. Paul's going to pick up that question next week. How does chapter 6 begin? You almost want it to begin as it does begin. I know how it begins, but you want it to begin. But that, does that mean I just go on sinning? No. But if you do sin tomorrow, as you will, that will not rob you of righteousness. So the gospel is really wonderful and simple and clear. But not all of you are in Christ yet. I know that. I know some of you. And that's a terribly, terribly dangerous place to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the gospel and the great reassurance that it gives us. Have mercy, Lord, on every soul in this place. Open our blind eyes. Soften our hard hearts. Make us safe with Jesus. Help us now to sing, Lord, with thankful hearts. Songs that engage our minds primarily. But we pray that in these few minutes as we sing, we will not only know that we are Christians, but feel that we are by your Holy Spirit within us, helping us to sing, as he helps us sometimes even just to groan. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.